of unleavened bread. So this year we do have a kind of an eight-year festival, if you, eight-year, I mean eight-day festival, uh, because of the back-to-back Sabbath. It wasn't part of the feast, obviously, but but we get eight days to enjoy. <clears throat> anyway, I for you out there on on the phone may not have heard the latest, but we've had uh, six baptisms here in the last three days. And uh, and another who has been baptized long ago, but has decided to be officially part of us. So uh, that's seven new people in that sense in just these days. That's unheard of in this group. I mean, even back when we had 120 to 150 people, we didn't get that kind of uh, of a time where we had that many people. So. It's, it's encouraging to me in the sense that I, I look at it and say, could this be the beginning of the former and the latter rain? That God has restored in part what the canker worm and all had taken away. Uh, <clears throat> well, what, what did Satan take away? Well, he took a lot of things away, but uh, numbers of people was one of it. People leaving, people dis- dispens- going other places, back into the world, whatever. And uh, so a restoration of, of uh, s- some people and some bringing in of new ones is part of what he says he'll do there in Isaiah 54 and other places. So I, I kind of am encouraged that maybe it's the beginning. I keep praying that we are so sin-sick and inadequate and wretched and upside down and backward and not everything we ought to be, but that God will have mercy on us anyway. Because, <laughs> I mean, anybody he uses, he's going to have to have that with because there are no human beings in any place that are what they ought to be. So I, I feel bad about myself and about us in that sense sometimes, but, but I have to realize that, you know, nobody's what they ought to be. So let's do the best we can and pray to God and ask for answers. Maybe he's beginning to turn his head back a little. Maybe he's beginning to bless us in ways. And I, So I find it exciting. And uh, we'll see where it goes from here. He didn't say he was going to dump Noah's flood on us in one day. He said he would give the former and latter rains. So uh, maybe a rain here and a rain there. And, and pretty soon we kind of the kind of blessings that that the scriptures seem to be talking about. So I'm thankful for what he has done. That's what I'm thankful for. And uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Well, let's get back into where we were last night. I uh, kind of teed off on some of that and used up the time and didn't get as far along as I wanted, but that's okay. There's still plenty. Uh, we were headed to Titus 2, having discussed uh, the role of husband and wife back in Genesis and as, as well as in First uh, Peter and in uh, Ephesians 5. There's a little more instruction here, because this all has to do with preparing the bride, preparing ourselves to be the bride of Christ, and the roles that we ought to have since our marriages should reflect, again, the marriage of the Lamb to His bride. So it's a direct 
physical type of the spiritual which is coming. And therefore, each of these sections of Scripture which discuss marriage and relationships within it and the roles that each play, husband or wife, uh, are very important to understanding the spiritual values that we need to learn and accept in order to prepare ourselves to be the bride of Christ himself. So, here in chapter 2 of Titus, he told uh, Titus to speak things which become sound doctrine, and then he goes on to explain some of the sound doctrine he's talking about. That the elderly men be sober, uh, I don't think that means not drunk. I think that means, uh, well, my margin says in the, the Greek, it says vigilant. Be sound-minded and vigilant about what is going on, uh, not just off on other stuff, but to be serious-minded in terms of, of life itself and their position in the church. Uh, grave, uh, which is similar, I think, doesn't mean that they're preparing to, to, to jump in a coffin, but uh, grave means serious. Again, uh, I've never been to a real happy, happy, joy, joy funeral, have you? They're trying to make that out of it these days. We're going to celebrate their life. You know, I'm, I'm kind of missing the one that died there. I don't feel like celebrating, but uh, that's... Well, that's kind of been a Catholic thing for a long, long time. If you've ever been to a Catholic wake, oh my, you've never seen so much food and drink in your life. Or so many drunks either. Because, uh, man, they do party when, it, uh, when somebody dies. And, uh, and maybe in some respects, uh, there's a balance there between uh, being sober-minded and being sad over whoever is gone. But... Uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. It's that they are to be vigilant and sober-minded. Temperate, uh, that would mean moderation in all things. Uh, and sound in faith. By the time you get older, uh, you should have these qualities. In other words, you shouldn't be an old fool. Uh, there are young fools and there are old fools. And God is saying, don't be an old fool. Uh, be sober, be vigilant, be temperate, uh, sound in faith. Why? Well, A, your relationship with God, so that it be correct as a candidate for His kingdom and to be part of the bride, but also as an example to the younger men, that they can see that there's somebody who trusts in God, there's somebody that's sober-minded and has their mind on important things. Uh, so the example of an older man can be very, very important. So sound in faith and in love. Uh, we can't just get old and self-centered over my problems, my health issues, my this and my that. Uh, take care of me because I'm old and I deserve it or I'm elderly, you know, and I'm the hoary head, so respect me and take care of me. No, that's not what he's saying. That's what can happen. But the older men are to be uh, strong in faith, as an example to others, and in love. 
Love is an outgoing, outflowing thing. So God expects the older men to be that way, to, to give of themselves to others. Younger men should be the same way as well, but they don't have as much time to do that. They got maybe a full-time job taking care of their family. Uh, they got the family to take care of itself. Uh, they've got their spiritual life to have in order. And when you're working full-time and running a family full-time and all the things that you're having to do, it eats your time up. But older men that are maybe retired or whatever, God expects them to be giving to the younger, not sitting back saying, uh, you know, pat my head or whatever. They need to be outgoing in love toward younger people because that's all there is. If they're old, then younger people is all there is to them. So this has to be outgoing love toward people younger than they are. So in faith, love, and in patience. You know, sometimes as our health deteriorates and uh, life is not quite as nice as it used to be in some respects, we can get grumpy and impatient and intolerant. I think he, what he's hitting on here is overcome some of the things that normal life and normal experience might take you into. Uh, avoid that and be these things instead of being just old, impatient, and crotchety. And woe is me, take care of me. No, that isn't what God expects. Interestingly here, he only uses one verse on the old men again, and then he's got a whole bunch about the women. <laughs> uh that's okay. There's an awful lot said in verse 2 there to the men. It's like the one we were reading in Peter, wasn't it? Or was it in uh, Ephesians? I guess it was Peter. Where there wasn't a whole lot said, but they were very, very important points. It had an awful lot to do with men's responsibilities and how they ought to be reacting. So, uh, he addresses the old men here first, which the earlier scriptures did not. But, Young or old, we need instruction in what our role should be. Because until you die, your role is a potential bride of Christ, and in being that kind of person that he would want for a bride doesn't end. It doesn't matter if you're 30 or 80. You still have that responsibility to fulfill the type of a proper uh, partner for Christ. You don't just say, well, I'm retired, uh, so I'm retired all over. No. Christianity never retires. It just doesn't. My father-in-law had a baseball cap when he retired, and uh, I may have told you this, but he wore that everywhere he went. He says, I'm retired. Don't ask me to do a damn thing. <laughs> when he retired, he quit. <laughs> he was still getting on the treadmill every day, but it hadn't been too long after he retired that he had a stroke. And then he, he wasn't much count after that. He lived several, quite a few years, actually. But he, 
didn't talk right and couldn't get around very well. So we don't retire. The ministry doesn't retire. Mr. Armstrong said, what do you mean retire? (laughs) I'm not going to retire. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do until it's over. And he didn't retire until he died. So don't get in retirement mode, I think is what I'm saying here. Just because you're old doesn't mean you can't be of good example and help to younger people who might need guidance and help and and encouragement and faith. And if they see it in you, then it helps them to have it as well. Then he addresses the old women, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness. So see, the instruction above about faith, love, and patience uh, are key ingredients to holiness. So... If you're an old woman, that doesn't mean that you retire either. You have to exhibit holiness. And he's going to show part of the reason that you need to do that shortly here. So be in behavior as becomes holiness. Then he talks about some of the pitfalls that sometimes older women get into. Uh, Not false accusers. Sometimes when people have a lot of time on their hands, and sometimes older women have that, then they become window watchers. I want to see what's going on around here. And, and uh, oh, so-and-so's doing such and such, and this is doing well, I wonder if they're sinning over there. It's like the guy that was looking out his window, and he saw me back here in the backyard in the goat pen. And uh, Charnel came over to help me with the baby goats. And there we were, out there in the goat pen, full of goats. So I get this email. I saw. I look out my window so I can hear my phone, and I saw sin in your backyard. Is it a sin to feed goats? Wasn't anything else going on. And actually, at this point, we were both single. So, what's the sin? But well, that wasn't even an old woman. Well, he acts like one sometimes. That sounded bad. That sounded sexist. <clears throat> Sorry. We have these sayings, <laughs> you know, and they aren't always true. Although sometimes they are. Anyway, not false accusers. Be very, very careful what we say, because when you see circumstantial evidence, it doesn't mean there's something going on that you might imagine. It doesn't mean that. It means what it is. And it may not be anything. You don't know, but your imagination can go there and you can figure out, oh, I know why that person was there doing that. Because they must also be doing this and this and this. You didn't see them doing this and this. You just imagined it. Go to Proverbs 6 and read about yourself if you ever do that. Not given to much wine. It's okay to drink wine, but... Don't be drunks. A lot of old people get to the point that they want to be drunks. Uh, They just kind of resolve a lot of their issues with alcohol. It's okay to drink. Just don't be given to too much. And teachers of good things, not evil gossip, not negativity, 
but teachers of good things. Read Philippians 4, 8 somewhere and see what it says about having your mind on things that are upbeat, positive, and not negative. Are there negative things around? Sure there are. There are negative things around. Are you supposed to talk about them? Not really. What does it say back there? Philippians isn't very far away. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, reality, whatsoever things are honest. Now, on the true, you say, whatever's true. Well, it's true. They're sinning. That's not what he's talking about. This is all about positivity here. Everything in this context is about positive talking. So, true uh, is in the light of those things which are right and good as opposed to something evil being true. Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise... Think on these things. So he doesn't say to think on people's problems, negativity, all those things that carnal, human, works of the flesh, minds think on. He's saying get your head above all that and find good things about people. If there be any praise... Use it. If there be any virtue, anything good about them, talk about that. Human nature does not like to talk about the good things in other human beings. It's not natural. It isn't normal. The human mind is contrary to God. It is deceitful and desperately wicked. And it likes to put other people down. It likes to raise itself up however that works, by putting others down and make them feel better because they're not like so-and-so. The carnal mind is always there working. But how many of our conversations are negative? You do it, I do it. Everybody does it. Well, maybe we need to start minimizing it. I don't think you're going to change that in one night. Your mind's only been that way for... 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100 years. But you have to work on it. Whatever things are good, talk about those. Whatever things are lovely, have your mind on good things, positive, upbeat things. Now, if Christ has his bride, do you think he's going to want to listen to complaints 24 hours a day throughout all eternity? Will he want to listen to whatever you might think of that's bad about the 143,367th member of the bride? He doesn't want to listen to that. You know what he's been doing for 6,000 years now? He's been listening to Satan accuse everybody from Adam and Eve on down. Every one of us. He is sick and tired of it. He doesn't like it. 
And you know what he's going to do with Satan? He's going to throw him down here to the earth, and then shortly thereafter, he's going to put him in solitary confinement where he can't bother anybody. Christ is sick of the clamor and the negativity and the accusation and the stuff going on among nearly 7 billion people on this earth, and he and the Father can hear it all? How would that sound? And then we, who are supposed to be doing what Philippians 4, 8 says, are maybe not quite as bad, but sometimes near about as bad as the rest of the stuff he hears from the rest of the world. Now, if you want to over you, if you want to work on something during days of unleavened bread, here'd be a real good start right here, in what we have to say to each other about each other, in what you have to say to this one, which is very nice to their face before you go talk to this one behind their back. You know, we're two-faced. We say one thing to one, and something else to the other. Christ just isn't going to have that in His kingdom. His bride will not be that way. Uh, he wouldn't put up with it. He's heard enough of it. So, we need to be working very hard on trying to have the attitude that his bride would have because that's part of how his bride is preparing herself and making herself ready, is to think and act like he does. Now, there were times when he got all over the Pharisees. I mean, he had righteous anger, and he tells us that we can have righteous anger, but not let the sun go down on it. It isn't to be a continuing attitude. We've got to get over it. Uh, so there is a time to be angry, but it had better be because of a true fault or a true sin or a true transgression not an imagination or a false accusation. We have to come to think positively. You know, there are some people just, all their life, they've been glass half empty, or glass pert nerd empty. That's just the way they think. How do you change that? How do you get to where you think like Philippians 4.8? where your mind doesn't go to all of, well, this isn't going to work. This won't happen. This is a bad thing. Oh, why are they doing that? On and on and on it goes. Because the mind thinks that way. Now, we're supposed to have what? A transformation of our minds. We're not supposed to be, uh, what does Paul say there, to the world, but transformed. So, if your mind thinks a certain way, it always has, and guess what? You're comfortable with it. That's just the way it's always worked. Well, God might not be comfortable with it. He might not like that way of thinking in His kingdom. So, we have to be transformed. And how does Paul say to be transformed? And John and others. By the washing of the water, by the word. Read the scriptures. Pray a lot. 
be filled with the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is not negative. It's just not. It's positive. Now, he looks down at you and me, okay? Here's, here's you an example. He looks down at you and me, and he sees all the wretchedness and the selfishness and the self-righteousness and all that we are and are trying not to be, but still are. And he says, I want to give you my kingdom. It is my good pleasure to give you my kingdom. If you will just do this and this and this, I will give you my kingdom. Why will you die, O Israel? Why won't you repent? Why won't you think right and do right? Do you have to die? In other words, I don't want you to die. I want you to make it. So his attitude is entirely positive. God is love. He's not hate. He's not accusation. He's not put down. He's not negative. He is love. That defines God. Perfect keeping of his commandments toward man and toward all the beings in his kingdom already. That's the way he thinks. And that's the way he wants us to think. So what we have to do is an awful lot of homework. If your mind goes this way and always has, and then God says, no, don't think that way, think this way, and we just read over and say, oh, that's nice, I should be that way. But hearers and doers are two different things. So we need to be changing our minds. We need to be transforming them through the Spirit of God so that they do think right. And it's a, it's a challenge. You know, we say, well, God spewed us out for Laodiceanism. But I'm a little more zealous now than I was then. What's he after? He wants a bride who is ready, willing, able, wanting, desiring, and bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. And that is a tall order. Our minds do not, by nature, think like Christ thinks. And sometimes we, we go for a long time thinking our carnal thoughts, and we don't realize that our mind's way off where it shouldn't be somewhere. It, it, it ought to be here in Philippians 4.8. Can we overcome Laodiceanism? I really kind of doubt it. How's your attitude toward this verse? How often do you read that verse? Especially if your mind goes to negative stuff a lot. Or to negativity about other people a lot. Hey, that's just pure Satanism. That's all that is. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And if we are accusers of the brethren, then we are of our father the devil. Right? Better quit abusing the brethren. Think, uh, think good things about them. I mean, I, yeah, I look over here. There's some good things about George. You know? I'll, I'll think of some. <laughs> just, just, he's just over here by himself. But all of us have some good things about us. 
But it's easy to forget them when, the, when somebody is so obnoxious about this, 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 and this, that that's what we want to talk about about them. No. That doesn't fit. doesn't work. It's not what he wants in his kingdom. Not at all. Teachers of good things. So old women ought to be thinking of good things. And if they teach, they ought to be teaching good things. All right, what are they? Here's, here's what they are to teach. If they are old, they should have learned something by now. Okay? And sometimes younger women don't like it when the old women uh, give them advice or counsel or whatever. Who do you think you are? I, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. But maybe they learned something in those 60, 70, 80 years. It's possible. Just, you know, I used to think my parents were kind of stupid when I was 13, 14, 15 or whatever. And then by the time I was 25, I learned that they were a lot smarter than I thought they were. Somehow, I don't know how they... They must have taken some smart pills somewhere in there to, to wise up like they did, <laughs> you know. But wherever you are in the spectrum of things, you think somebody else can't tell you what to do. And having somebody else tell us what to do is one of the hardest things for a human being to swallow. We just don't like it. And being told we're wrong is right there with that. We don't like to be told we're wrong. And our mind will go a hundred miles an hour finding a way to justify and say, you're wrong about what you said about me. You can't be right because my mind will figure out that I was right. So we don't get the lesson. We find a way to justify our conduct. I got me all wrong. That's not what I was thinking. That's not what I said. Yeah, you sure you didn't say that? So, maybe some of the old women do have something once in a while that be, would be worthwhile. Well, what? That they teach the younger women to be sober, like we saw up uh, in the verse, the old men uh, are vigilant. Well, here we have instruction from God, young ladies, that you might ought to listen to the older women sometimes because they might know some things that would help you in your life with your husbands, with your kids, with your life in general. They might learn some things. They don't, just because they're old doesn't mean they're old fools. Some of them may have learned something. So, God says that they can teach the young women. So if they try, what should your attitude be? Pride, ego, vanity? I know what I'm doing. Or meekness, humility, and say, you know, I'll think about that. That could be true. That might help me. There's no room for pride and ego. There's room for, okay, I'll listen. I'll hear what you say, and I'll see if there might be something there I can use. To love their husbands. Well, don't all young women love their husbands? Hmm, I don't know. Depends. A lot of them don't. Or they don't know how to love their husbands. Uh, they haven't lived long enough to have much life experience and know how. 
So some of the younger, some of the older women may have made some mistakes, may not have known how to love their husbands properly, and uh, some guidance from them might help the younger ladies know how to better deal with warty old guys. Uh, you know, men aren't that easy to live with. Some of you women could probably have some pretty good stories to tell that the young women might learn from. So be open to that. And to love their children. It's natural for a mother, generally, to love her children. But maybe the emphasis should be on how to love the children. Because if you've raised a crop, you've probably learned something. You've learned... If you didn't learn how to do it, you certainly by now know how not to do it, maybe. <laughs> and we all made mistakes as we reared our children. So they might be able to help you with some, some guidelines. I see, I see people all the time that are letting their children just run them ragged. They, they become where the children aren't a blessing to them anymore. I mean, they love them. Yeah, I love my kid and I'll hug it. But the kids running them ragged. It's ruining their life. And they don't know how to discipline the child. They don't know how to cause it to do what it ought to be, to help teach it its self-control. They know on some level maybe that, yeah, that kid ought to really obey me when I tell him something, and I shouldn't have to tell him ten times. I think he heard me the first time. But they don't have the tools or the ability to know how to handle that. We learned very quickly, we only tell our children to do something once. Just once. It doesn't have to be an all-night thing of go to bed now, go brush your teeth now, go do this, go do that. Didn't I ask you five minutes ago to do this? No. Well, I tell them once. And if they didn't do it, the hammer fell. Just like that. Because kids are smart. They figure out. Some parents will tell them four times before they do something about it. Some parents will tell them ten times before they do something about it. Some parents will never do anything about it. And the kids are pretty bright and they figure that out. And they can listen to your voice, get a little higher pitched and a little higher, and then finally say, okay, that's about it. I guess I better go do it now. Why put you and your kid through that? You know, some of you older women have learned this. I see you nodding. You know you don't have to put up with that garbage. And you know what to do about it. I'm not going to turn this all into a child-rearing sermon, but some of the older women have learned that. And I've seen in the church a lot where... Some of us were stricter with our kids and denied them certain things when they didn't do what was right. And then we had a whole new generation of those kids who came up in the church who said, I'm not going to treat my kids that way. I'm not going to paddle their bottoms. I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. My kids are going to have everything they want. I'm not going to be treated like I was. And then they got a house full of monsters that they have no clue what to do with. So, some of you older gals, yeah, of course the kids didn't like spanked. But 
my boys came back to me years later, said, Dad, we didn't like it then, but at least you taught us how to work. And they were thankful for that then. Kids need to learn to work when they're young so that they'll have a pattern to know to work when they're old. If you don't ever teach them to do anything and that they're, that they're expected to work, then when they get 25 and say, I don't want to work. Feed me like you always did. <laughs> you know? Anyway, we could go on and on. To love their husbands, and I might say properly love their husbands or properly love their children. Because they'll have feeling and emotion for their kids and their husbands maybe. But they just don't know how to love them properly in a way that helps and enhances the marriage and the childhood. You don't want a kid who turns 18 or 20 years old and has no control of himself. Can't control his mind, his mouth, or anything at age 20 when he ought to be a mature adult human being and still has no self-control. You didn't raise them right if they don't have any control by the time they're getting through teenage. They should be able to control themselves by then. That's the whole point of parenthood, is to raise them to be able to control themselves. Well, some of you older ladies know that. So, properly love your husbands and children. To be discreet, careful what they say, how they say it, who they say it to, Respect and honor toward others and toward older people for sure. Chaste, that is, properly moral, because women are the moral guardians of a society. Husbands are off work in the fields or work in the job or whatever, and here's mom, hopefully, at home, teaching the children values in life. Spiritual values, moral values. Men don't take the time to teach those things to their kids for the most part. That's mom's job. That's the way it is with the church. It's our job to teach you moral responsibility, all kinds of maturity, all the things that are being talked about here because the church is in the position of a mother. And to not supplant or put the father down or talk him down so that she looks good but she's there to point the children to their father to teach them to respect their father to love their father just as a church is here to teach you to love and respect your father in heaven and look to him the ministry does not stand between you and the father and the son in an organizational chart doesn't belong there it was there for some years in worldwide but it doesn't belong there there's no way the church or the ministry should get between you and God at all because of the veil being rent in twain Christ gave each and every one of us immediate total complete access to the Father in heaven and you can go there any moment you don't have to go through the ministry to get to the Father. So where is the ministry in the church in the organizational chart? 
off to the side. You've got a direct line to deity. The mother's over here to point you to deity, to help teach you how to get along with God. That's a mother's role in a family, is teach the children properly, and then they can respect the father who's the head of the house. And we read last night about how he needs to be respectable so that it's an easier job for mom to do. It all works together to make a family that works instead of being dysfunctional. So, she's the moral guard. Well, if she's the moral guard of the family, then she needs to be moral. Keepers at home. Well, that's not modern. The Bible, I know, is really outdated, as is the U.S. Constitution and so on, because we know everybody is expected now to be in the workforce and that women need equality so that they can wear one around their neck just like the men do. Uh, no, it's not out of date. God intended from the beginning for women to be keepers at home, not out in the workforce. They, the biggest responsibility a woman can possibly have is teaching her children to be the kind of people God would want those children to be and grow up to be. I mean, every one of those children is a type of Christ. Every one of those children should grow up to be part of the kingdom of God someday. What bigger responsibility, what bigger opportunity is there than to teach the future children of God? What is the role of the bride in the world tomorrow? Teach all the children of the world the way of God. So what is your responsibility as a mother? Teach your kids the way of God. That's your biggest responsibility in life. Other than, I mean, along with supporting and, and making the marriage right between you and your husband, which pictures Christ's marriage. But that is first, and the children are second. But we got it all upside down in our country. The children are first. Everything for the children. Everything for the children. So the children run you crazy going to soccer camp and everything you can name. Everything's for the children. Every newspaper article I read, there were 16 people killed and four of them were children. It's all about the children. Who cares about the others, the adults? You can kill them, okay, but they got four children. It's slanted that way in everything you read and see. It's all for the kids. No, it's not. Does God's life revolve around you or does your life revolve around God? No question on that one. Will our lives as the bride of Christ revolve around Christ? I think so. That's the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. So, God expects the women, for the most part, to be keepers at home. Raise the children properly. Be a help uh, suitable for her husband. She's in a subordinate role, but it is do not diminish in any way the importance of that role.
So the, our, our whole nation's got it upside down. You know what's going to happen to that? The whole nation's going to be destroyed here in less than a year, I think. And then there won't be any more of that. And it'll all get straightened out in the millennium. And husbands will support the family. And wives will support the children and the husband and be keepers at home. It's the way the whole society is going to be set up. And they need to be good, good people, doing what's right, uh, obedient to their own husbands, not to everybody else's, but obedient to their own husbands. We read that back yesterday, I think, in another scripture. So that's something that's important. Do you think Christ is going to want to go through all eternity with 144,000 individuals as his bride that won't be obedient to him? <laughs> what a mess that would It's bad enough to have one cantankerous woman that won't do what you ask her to. What if you had 144,000 of them? Solomon only had 1,000 and he got almost bananas over it. Every, every so often in the Proverbs, he'll bring it up. You notice that? Oh, living with a brawling woman's driving me nuts. Christ won't put up with that. He just won't. I go on and on, but hey, we've got to get the point. <laughs> we've got to become what Christ wants to live with. And Paul understood that. And he keeps writing these things because they were problems. They were simply problems. And he said, let's fix it. That the word of God be not blasphemed. If you're not doing these things that we've just talked about, the word of God is blasphemed. Because you're ignoring the things that he says to do whether it be right here in this specific instruction to husbands and wives and old and young, or whether it's Philippians 4.8 in the way you think, or thousands of other verses, if you read it and you don't do it, God considers that blasphemy. Blasphemy how? It's also idolatry. Because you're putting what you want to do and how you want to live above the way He wants you to think and live. So you're putting your mind above the Word of God in that sense, in value, and therefore it is idolatry. And idolatry is the biggest sin there is. And the biggest idol any of us have is ourself. And that has to be constantly dealt with. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. All right, let's move on from there. It's, it's somewhat of a repeat, but he had to keep repeating it to every church because they had the same problems everywhere. So I wanted to go over enough of them to maybe uh, emphasize it to us. Now let's go to Revelation 14. Uh, speaking of the bride, <clears throat> here in chapter 14 of Revelation the Lamb stood on the mountain with 144,000 that had the name of God sealed in their foreheads or written there. And uh, they were singing a song in verse 3 before the throne, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So he tells us in Revelation there in instruction in one of the churches, I forget which, 
that they would be given a new song. Well, each of those things that he tells all those seven churches are part of the gifts of God, and they all apply to all of them if they're part of the kingdom of God. But with each one, he would offer something, and maybe some particular ones would would get more of this gift than that gift, and more of this, you know, God gives gifts according as he chooses. But uh, anyway, these are the ones redeemed from the earth, the ones in the first resurrection. I won't go into all that, but the first resurrection is only 144,000. That multitude in Revelation 7 that's mentioned after the 144,000 is speaking of the great white throne judgment. Yes, they will be before the throne of God as well, but these are the only ones that can sing that song. So if that innumerable multitude were there, and they'd been changed, and they see Christ for a year on a honeymoon with His bride, and they're standing over here at the side, and they can't sing the song, and they can't join in and everything, how are they going to feel? Now, if the bride is already established, the beginning of the millennium, and the people who survived see her and deal with her, then those who come up in the great white throne judgment are going to see an established situation going on, and they will be humbled by however they died, or even before they knew they were alive, as in babies, and they can accept that these came before me. These went through things that I don't have to go through. And God granted them to be my mama. So they look up and say, there's mama. Instead of sitting over here feeling like second class citizens if they're not in the first resurrection. God has it all figured out. Anyway, let's read on down. Verse 4. These are they which were not defiled with women. Are women bad? What does that mean? Now, when God gave Eve to Adam, that wasn't bad, was it? When did women become evil? Defiled. That mean you have anything to do with a woman? You're defiled? We need to understand, what's this talking about? They're not defiled with women. The 144,000, the bride of Christ, well, part of them were women. Weren't they? Aren't part of the first fruits women? Paul referred to some women as part of the first fruits. For they are virgins. Is it talking about men here who are virgins? that weren't defiled with women? How many members of God's church, out of the many that He called here in the end time, were virgins all their lives? Never had sex? Probably not very many. Probably very few, and they were a bit odd. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. It's 144,000 firstfruits. No more, no less. These are the firstfruits. 
not some of them, all of them. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without uh, fault before the throne of God. Now, we are not without fault as we sit here tonight. But when we are changed, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and this immortal puts on immortality, we're faultless. No faults. Perfect. Mature. Everything that Christ wants us to be. Well, so, do we say, well, if he's going to make us perfect just like that, in a moment of twinkling of an eye, why bother now? Well, because he says, to those who overcome will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So, he knows we'll never reach ultimate perfection or total spiritual maturity in this life, but he expects us to be headed there. The bride has made herself ready. She has overcome. She has grown. She has shown him by her attitude that she really, really, really wants to be like him. And she's working at it, even though the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and she fails. It's all about attitude. Is that person really working? Do they love me? Do they love my father enough? Do they love our way of life enough that they are working every day to be more like God? And if he sees that, he'll say, Wow, I like that attitude. I want that one. That's what it's all about. It's not about, in that sense, works. It's a matter of grace and works. I, I will give you grace if I see good works. You can't earn salvation because you've done already sinned. And you're going to die. So you can't earn it. It's a free gift of God by His unmerited pardon or grace that we receive eternal life. It's a gift of God. And it's a gift He gives to those that He feels love and affection for. He looks down here and sees an awful lot of sin, doesn't he? He sees people that are totally contrary to him. He hears all this garbage in the air that I was talking about earlier. And he looks down. Man, there's one that talks to me. There's one that respects me. There's one that's working every day to try to be like me. Now, is it really going to be any hassle to him to decide which ones he wants? I don't think so. He can see the light. You know, if we're a light to God, if the light is in us, God can see his spirit, his light in us. And so can Satan. And he hates the light of God in our minds and hearts. And therefore, he goes to God and accuses us every day of everything he can possibly figure out that we might be wrong about. And he doesn't even worry about real sin. He makes false accusations. Anything he dreams up about you, he tells to Christ and the Father. And when he comes down, he will go after the church because he knows by the light of God shining out her eyes who she is.
And he'll come after her with all his strength and energy. And if she gets to a place of safety and is protected there because his army got swallowed up, then he's going to go by after the 90% of the church that are left out in the world that go into tribulation. And he's going to kill them all. About a third of them will repent, Zechariah tells us, before they die. But do you think Satan is going to spare any of them? If they're keeping the Sabbath, if they're trying to obey God, and there's any of the light of God's Spirit in them, Satan can see it. And he'll go after them. I don't think any will survive. So if you've got the Spirit of God, you better be working toward overcoming, growing, and being prepared as the bride of Christ. Yeah, I mean, didn't we, guys? Didn't we look around at the women that are available and say, well, I kind of like her. She's not bad. Well, she's pretty. Boy, she's smart. She's ugly. We looked around. And finally, we settled on somebody that we thought would be good for us and that we could be good to them. And we said, that's the one I want. You figure it out finally. That's the one I want. Okay, go for it. And hope she likes you. <laughs> you know? Christ is the same way. He's looking us all over down here, figuring out which ones He wants. Does He want the five that are asleep? Or does He want the five that are awake? Does He want the one in the Song of Solomon that says, Well, you know, I got my shoes off and I got my teddy bear and I'm comfy. Uh, let me think about this. That's not the one he wants. He wants the one that says, Oh, my love, you're here. She jumps straight up, runs and opens the door, and flies into his arms. That's the one he wants. Right? Be that one. Let's be that one. Am I going to get through the section I wanted to tonight? Anyway, these are virgins that aren't defiled by women. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. And let's start by going to 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11. And I think it's verse 2. Yeah. Here Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. And this was probably the most immoral non-virtuous group of people anywhere on the earth at that time. Corinth was known for their sex sins, for their perversion. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 uh, talks about the one at Passover time there that was incest going on within the family of the man. So Corinth was known for that kind of thing. Okay? He says, Would to God you could bear me with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you, sinful, wretched, immoral, dastardly Corinthians, with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. Who would that be? Christ. He was considering these people from this kind of culture to be engaged to Christ. What does it mean if you're engaged to Christ? 
That means he intends to marry you. And if he intends to marry you, that means you're one of the 144,000. Right? We, are just, we just got back from there. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now these people had been as immoral as any culture around. So how can he say this about them? You, you know, normally you'd say, you slime, you'll never be in the kingdom of God. Ah, there's a transformation. These people had begun to learn about God instead of Diana or other false gods, Venus, name them. They had begun to learn about God. And then they'd started doing things that God said. And then they came to the point, they said, I want to be part of the bride of Christ. I want to be part of the church of God. And Paul said, repent of your sins. Quit fornicating and adulterating and bestiality and homosexuality and incest and all these things you've been doing all your lives. Straighten up. Live by the commandments. Oh, I see. And then they changed. And then they came and they wanted to be baptized. And he says, have you repented of these sins? Are you still doing all this stuff you've been doing all your life? No, I quit. I had one in the Bahamas one time. He said, well, he wanted me to baptize him. I said, well, are you keeping God's laws? Well, he said a little bit of fornication. And uh, then I'd come back in three months, and he'd come up, and he'd ask me if he could be baptized. I says, well, are you keeping God's laws? Well, still fornificating a little. Uh, that was the way they said it over there. And this went on and on. And he never got baptized. Because he never quit it. Well, now these apparently had quit it. And then they were baptized. And what happened when they got baptized? Their sins were washed away. I saw some kind of black looking water this afternoon once. The sins get washed away. They no longer exist. So if you were a fornicator and an adulterer and an incestuous person, or whatever you were, whichever of God's laws, they were just known for their immorality. And it does say back here, and that's the reason I'm focusing on this, that these were virgins and not defiled with women. Now, where is it? Hebrews 13.4 comes to mind. I think that's the right one. Let me turn back there for a moment. See if I'm right. Yeah, Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable in all. Everything about marriage is honorable. And the bed undefiled. Does that mean you wash the sheets? No, you had, as a husband and wife, you had sex in the bed, and it didn't get defiled. It's honorable. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge says in Revelation 22, they won't be in the kingdom of God. So, God says that sex used properly in marriage is honorable, and there's no defilement there. So, what kind of defilement would that have been talking about in Revelation 14? 
adultery, fornication, incest, homosexuality, all those things that do defile. Well, it says that these weren't defiled that way. Well, these here in Corinth had been. But when they were baptized, the old man died because they had already they were supposed to repent first and quit doing those things. And then that was all washed away and the old man died. That's the symbolism. And then by the laying on of hands, God gives them a new life. They're conceived of the Spirit. So, they're new. So, anything that applied to them prior to repentance no longer counts. Now, as a human being, they had done all those things. And you know what? They'll remember them. Their mates will remember them. Whoever they send with will remember them. You don't just flush out the human memory that easy. You might have been repentant and baptized and God forgave your sins, but if you work real hard at it, you can remember some of them. I'll bet you. So they're still in your memory bank. They'll go away when you're transformed and have a new mind. Because this new mind at baptism is only symbolic. You don't get a whole new brain with nothing in it. It's still there. But when you're transformed, when you're made a bride of Christ, all of this will be forgotten. Just like God forgets sin, so will you. But in His estimation of your spiritual condition, once you repent and are baptized, you have a new start, a new life. So He no longer holds you responsible for whatever it was you did in the past. It's gone. So he considers you a virgin. So it's a spiritual connotation or a spiritual definition. Sure, these had all sinned physically. But now, that had all been forgiven and they were engaged to Christ as their future husband. And whatever they'd done in life was forgotten. Now, there have been one or two Christians from that time and forward who not only had the new life, the conception with laying on of hands after baptism, but there have been one or two or three of them since then that have actually sinned after baptism, if you could imagine that. Given a new life and then sinned afterward. Might have been four or five. Every one of us. If we made it five minutes or a day after baptism, we were doing pretty good. <laughs> Some kind of thought was selfishness or whatever it might be. But you know what? Christ's sacrifice is a continuing sacrifice. If His sacrifice was big enough to cover your past sins, when you're trying to walk the right way and do what you should be doing, it's also big enough to cover your current sins if you repent of them. He knows we'll make mistakes. But if we come and we ask for forgiveness and we keep moving forward and overcoming, He will not hold it to our account. He'll put it under the blood of His Son. And therefore, we can still be considered, as Paul considered these people, chaste virgins engaged to God. And you know what? Some of them 
when he said this about them, some of them made some mistakes after that? Now, that's just my thought, but I, I suspect that's true, just like you and I have. But in his mind, he was willing to forgive and to forget and to show grace and mercy on your sins and mine. Now, if he's big enough to do that, and that's his mind, then we have to have that same mind and have mercy on each other. Right? He says, if you have mercy on others, I will have mercy on you. If you don't have mercy on others, I will show no mercy to you. So, it's good for the goose, good for the gander, you know? That's just the way that it is. So, when he says they are virgins and not defiled with women, it's a spiritual thing, and it also means in terms of our worship. Uh, because their women are pictured as churches, or churches are pictured as women in the Bible. And there are a lot of false, bad women out there, bad churches. In fact, basically all of churchianity is bad churches. Some people say, well, I just don't like organized religion. Well, you're right, I don't either. <laughs> There's not one of them that follows this book. I've studied them all, basically. Did it in a class in college. So we went through what the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics and, and even got into the Shintoists and the Buddhists and all of that stuff and saw that none of it fits this book. So I can understand why people get turned off at organized religion. There's only one true church. Only one that God looks to, and that's those who worship, as John 4.24 says, in spirit and in truth. Now, a lot of people think they have the Spirit of God because they love each other, but they don't have the truth. It has to be in spirit and in truth. And if they only know six scriptures, they don't know much truth. We must live by every word of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. Every word of God. So this is the truth. And if they don't consider the whole Bible then they can't be a church of God. They're organized under Methodist Methodism. John Wesley's Methodism. He was a, a methodical guy. So they're Methodists. That's how they got their name. They're not following God. I know I was one until I was seven or eight years old. Anyway, I'm running out of time again. Um, that's probably about all. I, I, I want to say some more about virgins and virtuous because it has an awful lot to do with the end times here and who God is going to look to. But I, I wanted to establish it in Revelation 14 that the 144,000 are chaste virgins, not defiled with women, and then understand that the Corinthians could be in that category. And so can the rest of us. And then we'll go on to see what God is looking for in a virtuous woman or in a select virgin that He wants. And hopefully we'll get to that tomorrow night. See, this is t tomorrow's Wednesday. We have our, our, uh, our big meal. We'll 
uh, I'll try to cut it short tomorrow night.